Good morning. My name is Mercy Wadwa, and today we begin our celebration of Advent. Advent is the time of year when we recognize the fulfillment of God's Word when God the Son took on human form. Today we remember the ministry of the prophets who told us what God would do generations before He did it. Their ministry inspires us to place our hope in God who always accomplishes His purposes and fulfills His Word. A reading from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 33, 14-16 The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. Now a reading from the New Testament, Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for telling us what you would do and then doing it. Thank you for the prophets. Our hope in you is built stronger and stronger as we recognize their ministry and the truth of what they foretold. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, welcome to Gateway Online and welcome to our celebration of the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is the season when we recognize and celebrate the significance of the birth of Jesus. Now, last week we ended a series of conversations on the Old Testament book of Malachi which is one of the last books written in the Old Testament, and probably the very last, depending on how you date it. And for Advent, we're going to be looking at the New Testament story of the birth of Jesus. So if you're familiar with the Bible at all, then you may have noticed that when you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you kind of enter a different world. The culture seems to have shifted. The people involved are somewhat different. There are, there are new groups of people we've never heard of before. The language is different. The politics is different. The circumstances are very different. What happened? Well, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but in almost all Bibles, if you look between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll see one or two blank pages. <laughs> Today, we're going to look at that blank page. We're going to look at what happened there and then, which will set us up to hear more of the story of Jesus with a little more understanding. So you may remember that Malachi was written around 430 B.C., and Jesus was born sometime around 6 AD, according to the best estimates. Bible scholars like to call this in-between blank page time the intertestamental period. First of all, they call it that because it's the period between the Old and New Testament. And secondly, they call it that because they have to justify all that education they got, so they make up words like that. Now, we know God speaks in a variety of ways. He speaks through friends. He speaks through circumstances. He speaks through our emotions sometimes, a sense of peace or lack of peace, for example. He speaks through dreams. He can even speak through online sermons. But primarily, God has always spoken through His Word and His world. His Word is revelation. His world is creation. So Psalm 19, 1 and 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands day after day. They pour forth speech night after night. They display knowledge. And this is a, script, a description of God speaking through creation. 
Then later in that psalm, the psalmist says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is a description of God speaking through his word. But for over 400 years after Malachi, there was no prophet, there was no poet, there was no divinely inspired historian. God was seemingly silent, but he wasn't absent. He never is. And uh, right now we want to look at what happened during that period and how God was arranging things, let's say. As I said, there were no biblical books written during this period. Now, if you grew up Catholic or Greek Orthodox, you may be aware of the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is a collection of mostly historical accounts written during this period. And Catholic and Greek Orthodox consider these works deuterocanonical, which means almost like scripture. But during the Protestant Reformation, scholars like Martin Luther recognized that these works were not really like Scripture at all. So they aren't included in Protestant Bibles. There's nothing wrong with them. They've just never been considered truly inspired. But while there are no divinely inspired books written during this period, there is an Old Testament prophet who dealt extensively with this period, the prophet Daniel. You may be familiar with this famous picture of Daniel painted by Rubens. Remember, Daniel is the one who was put in the lion's den. Well, this same Daniel makes extensive predictions about the whole period of intertestamental history that are mind-blowingly accurate. Look, if you struggle with believing in the supernatural, I get it. But I would commend a study of Daniel sometime. It's a little weird, but he makes an incredible number of predictions with incredible accuracy. For example, in Daniel chapter 2, we read an account of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon having a dream. Daniel, by the way, was one of the many young Jewish aristocrats from Jerusalem who'd been forcefully taken to Babylon by the Babylonians when they destroyed Jerusalem. That's how he ended up being thrown to the lions. Anyway, the king had a dream that greatly disturbed him. He wanted to know what it meant, but he demanded that his court magicians first tell him what he dreamed before giving him an interpretation. You see, he didn't want any made-up mumbo-jumbo. This dream had disturbed him, and he wanted a real interpretation. But no one was able to tell the king what he dreamed, except for the young Jewish prisoner named Daniel. So, Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his dream, quote, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. That's in chapter 2, verse 31. The statue had a head of gold, a breastplate and arms of silver, a, a, a belly and thighs that were made of bronze, and its legs and feet were clay and iron. Then, after telling him the contents of his dream, Daniel interpreted it, and the king was obviously all ears. He told the king that what he had seen represented the great kingdoms of the world that were coming. And Daniel went on to describe basically what the geopolitical world would look like for the next 500 years. Now hold that thought for a second. Because later in the book, in chapter 7, Daniel recounts a dream that he had personally. He dreamt of a great churning sea, and out of the sea, four beasts, four again, arose in succession from the sea. The first beast was a lion with the wings of an eagle. The second beast was a bear. The third beast was a leopard with, with four wings on its back and, and four heads. 
And the fourth beast, let me quote here. Daniel 7, 7 says this. After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. All right, what in the world do we make of that? Well, as I said, it turns out that God had given Daniel a clear picture of what was going to happen during the 400 years leading up to Jesus's life. Now, check out this image. This is essentially what God showed Daniel. On the left side is a visual representation of the statue that the king saw. On the right side are representations of the animals in Daniel's dream. And in both cases, the great kingdoms of the world that cover the four centuries leading up to Jesus' birth are represented. So the first world kingdom that the king and Daniel had dreamed about was the Babylonians. Now, Daniel was very familiar with the Babylonians. They had swept through the world in the 7th and 6th centuries BC, overwhelming everything in their path, including Jerusalem, Daniel's home. They were represented by the head of gold in the king's dream and by the lion in Daniel's dream. And by the way, the lion was a symbol of Babylon. You can go to the British Museum today and see an image of Babylon represented as a lion with wings. The second kingdom was the Persian kingdom. And Daniel lived long enough to see King Cyrus and the Persians overtake Babylon. They are represented by the silver breastplate in the king's dream and by the bear in Daniel's dream. And there's some details about that that are even fascinating as well that relate to uh, the Persians. The third kingdom was Greece, represented by the bronze and the four-headed leopard in uh, Daniel's dream. And, and listen, all three of these kingdoms are mentioned repeatedly throughout Daniel. The only one of the world kingdoms not mentioned by name is the fourth kingdom. And the fourth kingdom was the Roman Empire, represented by the iron legs from King Nebuchadnezzar's dream and by the terrifying beast in Daniel's dream. And this is amazing to me. This is, a, this is an accurate, high-level summary of the geopolitical landscape of the world from about 600 B.C. to the time of Jesus. So now, let's go back to Malachi. When we left them in Malachi, the Jews in Jerusalem were living in a pretty steady state, pretty disappointing if you remember, but consistent at least. They were being ruled by Persian overlords. They were allowed to rebuild the city, including its walled fortifications, and they were allowed to rebuild the temple. There were probably about 50 to 60,000 of them living in and around Jerusalem. This was the way of things until about 334 B.C., this is roughly 100 years after Malachi. Hang on to that date for a second, 334 B.C. So some years before that date, about 20 years, a Macedonian ruler named Philip began to organize and conquer all of the Greek city-states. After he'd brought some order to Greece, he began to plan an invasion of the Persian Empire with the, empire with the divine, uh, combined Greek forces because the Greeks had been perennially tormented by the Persians. Remember, Persia is the second world kingdom in Daniel's dream. Greece is the third. So you can see what's about to happen. Only during the planning of the expedition against the Persians, Philip was assassinated. But the Greeks weren't put off. Instead, Philip's son was established as the ruler and general of the larger Greek armies. 
Philip's son was a 20-year-old unknown quantity. Some believed him to be a bookworm. He had been tutored during his youth by a philosopher named Aristotle. Not bad. The son's name was Alexander. He took command of the Greek army, and in less than 12 years, he had moved across part of Europe, devastated the Persian Empire, swept east all the way to India, and back through the Middle East and across North Africa. This campaign brought Alexander the Great to the doorstep of Jerusalem in 334 BC. Now, there were those in Israel who welcomed Alexander's coming. They saw this as an improvement over Persia. One of those welcoming voices was a priest named Jadua. And as Alexander and his army approached Jerusalem, Jadua rode out to meet him. When Alexander saw Jadua, he got down off his horse and bowed down to him. Alexander had seen, he said, had seen something like this in a dream and believed that Jadua had a message for him. So if you can believe it, Jadua brought out a scroll of Daniel and showed Alexander chapters two and seven. How crazy is that? He told Alexander that he would be a great leader and establish a world kingdom. It had been prophesied. And because of that encounter, Alexander spared Jerusalem and the temple. Now, it was Alexander's intention to continue his expansion to the, what he called the very edge of the world, but he died in 323 BC. By the way, he died in Nebuchadnezzar's palace in Babylon. He may have been poisoned by someone close to him. We don't know for sure. And he was 32 years old. Anyway, with Alexander's death, his four main generals decided to divide the world up into four parts and to maintain order until Alexander's son was old enough to rule. General Cassander took control of Greece and Macedonia. General Lysimachus took control of Turkey. And General Seleucus took control of Syria and the part of the world extending out from there. And finally, General Ptolemy took control of Egypt. So check out this map. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that there were four generals who divided their kingdom into four regions. Remember the four-headed leopard from Daniel's dream? Maybe coincidence or a lucky guess, but I don't think so. Now, the rulers that interest us most are the Seleucids and the Ptolemies because, well, look where they are and look at the intersection of their territories. See the Mediterranean? The intersection of their territories is right on top of Israel. Israel was what you would call a buffer state between these two rivals. Well, as you might have expected, the generals did not give their kingdoms back to Alexander's son. Does that surprise anyone? In fact, they assassinated Alexander's son and the boy's mother and everyone in the family. As an aside, uh, you have to listen to what Daniel says in um, Daniel chapter 11. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he's gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. Presumably Alexander. Then listen, after he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. What can I say? The guy was a prophet. 
So for the next 150 years, the descendants of these two generals pushed and shoved and vied for hegemony throughout the Middle East and Egypt. It wasn't all that war so much as it was just uh, constant tension and skirmishes. But the effect of all of this was that the Greek culture and the Greek language became entrenched throughout much of the known world. It was kind of like English is today. And that meant for the first time, the world could communicate with itself, or at least cross-regional communication became much, much easier and more fluid. So ideas and philosophies, religions could spread more easily and people could move around more easily. In fact, through this entire period, Jewish people scattered throughout this part of the world. The first part of this scattering was caused by the exile that the Babylonian conquest enforced. We talked about this during the Malachi series. But after that, some of it, some of the movement was voluntary or trade-related, or who knows why. In fact, by the time of Jesus, estimates are that there were as many as a million Jews living in Egypt, including Jesus and his family for a while, by the way. So throughout the 300s, the 200s, and the 100s BC, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies maintained their control over their various domains of Syria and Egypt. Again, this was two of the heads of the leopard that Daniel saw. They exercised varying degrees of control over Judea at various times, but for the Jews, either way meant the absence of self-rule. One uh, particular Seleucid ruler is worth note. He was called Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes, by the way, is the Greek word for the appearance of God. Obviously, this guy didn't suffer from a low self-esteem. Antiochus ruled over the Seleucid realm from about 175 to 164 BC. Now, by this time, the power of the Greeks had already begun to wane because Rome had begun to emerge as a significant world power. Again, back to Daniel's dreams. Remember, Rome was, Rome was the fourth world power, the terrifying and frightening and very powerful fourth beast that would come. So for several decades, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids played allegiance games with one another and with Rome, trying various alliances to secure their own positions. Interestingly, you know, the last of the Ptolemaic rulers who reigned during this period was a woman named Cleopatra. Anyway, Antiochus Epiphanes advanced on Ptolemaic Egypt to claim part of its territory in 168 BC. But as it turned out, the Ptolemies had made an alliance with Rome. So a Roman ambassador named Gaius Leonis met Antiochus and just himself in a small contingent. And Leonis demanded that Antiochus retreat with his entire force back to Syria and vacate Egypt. Antiochus asked for time to think about it, at which point, and this is one of the great dramatic moments in ancient history, in my opinion, at that point, Leonis drew a circle around Antiochus and told him to decide. Leonis said, the direction out of which you leave this circle will determine your fate. If you move toward Egypt, you will face the full might of Rome. If you move back the other direction, you can retreat unharmed. Clearly, there was a new big kid on the block. Antiochus retreated. But when he returned to Judea, Antiochus engaged in one of the cruelest campaigns against the Jews in history. I've read secular scholars who suggest that it actually may have come about because of his bruised ego. We don't know for sure. But when he returned, he attacked Jerusalem. He started by killing 40 Jews and 40 more were sold into slavery. 
He outlawed Judaism. He made idolatry mandatory in the city. He banned the sacrifices at the temple and he set up an idol to the god Zeus in the temple. At one point, he just sacrificed a pig on the altar and forced the priest to eat the meat. Many scholars believe this is what Daniel was referring to in chapter 9 when he talked about the abomination of desolation. One Sabbath, Antiochus sent soldiers into the city to kill every mother and every child they saw. He burned scripture. He forbade parents from circumcising their children. There's one account that tells the story of two women who defied Antiochus's orders and circumcised their children on the eighth day. When Antiochus found out, he had the children killed right in front of the mothers. Then he made the mothers march through the streets of the city with their dead children hanging from their necks until they reached the wall of the city from which he threw them off to their deaths. This cruelty lasted for more than five years. I read one account that said seven years off and on. And Antiochus didn't end this campaign of cruelty voluntarily. It ended when a small band of Jews from from a priestly family named the Maccabees decided to act. They organized and rallied support, and eventually they marched on Jerusalem with a ragtag army of Jewish farmers. They took back the temple area and then threw the Syrian Seleucids out of Jerusalem by force. They cleansed the temple and renewed the sacrifices. And by the way, Hanukkah is the celebration of this revolt. Hanukkah didn't exist in the Old Testament, but by the time of Jesus, it had become a a very important, very familiar holiday. It's called the Festival of Dedication. And in John 10, John tells us that Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Festival of Dedication there. He was celebrating Hanukkah. This Maccabean revolt also initiated a period of self-rule in Israel, which lasted several decades. It was always very tentative self-rule, but there was at least some semblance of independence. Now, before we look at the Roman influence, let's look at what was going on with Judaism during this period. So a little break. You see, throughout the whole period we've been talking about, from Malachi up to Jesus, various political slash spiritual and even class-oriented movements emerged within uh, Jerusalem society and in Judaism at large. Two of them are worth mentioning. We see them a lot in the New Testament. The first was the Sadducees. They were an aristocratic scholarly group, which included scribes and teachers and priests. This movement may have emerged initially to protect the religious observances around the temple. Historians don't know for sure. And for some reason, this group often favored trying to get along with whatever foreign power was in place. That meant that the Sadducees appreciated Greek culture and influence, and by the time of Jesus, they were Roman sympathizers. Perhaps they thought they were trying to preserve Judaism, or perhaps they were simply trying to preserve their place of prominence. Who knows? At points, The Sadducees felt like a political group. At other points, it felt like a religious movement. Their influence grew and declined, and it grew and declined, depending on the conditions on the ground and depending on who was the high priest. A second important school of thought emerged during the time of the exile in Babylon. This group came about through the very serious study of Moses' law. They were intent on keeping their faith alive and not making the same mistakes that their forefathers had made. Later, they kind of became a counterpoint to the Sadducees. They were very, very serious about observing the law. They had very little regard for any other cultural influences. In fact, they tended to be separatists. They developed elaborate regulations designed to help people scrupulously follow the law. They were called Pharisees. And then, of course, by the time of Jesus, this group had developed a hard tendency toward legalism. 
Their faith was a check the box kind of faith or a do this, don't do that kind of faith. And Jesus was very critical of this approach. Okay, another important development in Judaism was uh, the emergence of synagogues. Because the Jews were scattered around the world, it became their habit to meet in small and large groups called synagogues. They couldn't make it to temple, obviously, and for some of those years, there was no temple. So the synagogue provided a way to encourage their faith, and, and it provided a place uh, for the study of the Law of Moses. And the habit of participating in a synagogue became so influ influential that it was also practiced within the land of Israel itself, even after they rebuilt the temple. And these synagogues, well, they didn't exist in the Old Testament. This happened during the intertestamental period. But think about how important the synagogue system became in expressing ideas and sharing their faith. And think about the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Because of the synagogue system, he could go to any city in the world and at least know where to begin. Okay, let's take a break. I mean, a breath for a second. Uh, you know, as we look back at it now from our perspective, centuries removed, it seems like a foregone conclusion. But between about 100 AD and 50 AD, the Roman Empire just took over the remaining part of the Middle East and Europe and eliminated the former Greek regions. That brought the Roman army to the gates of Jerusalem in 63 AD under the leadership of a general named Pompey. And as we said, this is the fourth and final beast that Daniel had predicted. There was a minor character in Rome's story who's worth mentioning because he, he would play a pretty big part in our story. His name was Antipater. He was an Edomian, which is modern day Jordan. And uh, he helped Rome settle the Judean countryside. So for his part in that effort, Antipater was awarded a governorship of the area of Judea. And his son would later inherit that role. In fact, his son very much wanted to be loved by the Jews. He married a Jewish woman, but he, he wasn't loved by the Jews. But it seems that he worked at it pretty hard, if you know his history. At one point, his son appealed to the Roman Senate and they actually granted him the title King of the Jews. This title had not been used for centuries. His name was Herod. He was very, very proud of that title. And this is why he was so upset when a group of travelers came to his palace one time and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? Because they'd seen his sign in the sky. Now, you and I probably know more about the Roman period than we do about the other kingdoms. It was incredibly influential for centuries, and it did many important things and many cruel things. But among those things, one of the principal benefits it offered to the world was the establishment of what it liked to call the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. They accomplished this peace by sheer force, of course, but they also accomplished the peace by building 250,000 miles of roads all over the known world. You heard that right. 250,000 miles. In fact, 50,000 of those miles were paved roads with stone pavers. And then along those routes, they, they built garrisons to protect their kingdom and to protect travelers. This Pax Romana made it possible to send letters, to send goods, to travel with relative ease throughout the world. This was an amazing change in a relatively short period of time. 
If you take this together with the fact that the Greek language was now spoken almost everywhere, well, you could argue that all of these events had happened, all these events that happened during the blank page period had rapidly shrunk the world by a degree that wasn't rivaled until the advent of the internet. It, it really helps us understand how Paul could say in Galatians 4.4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So during the blank page era, the world had been prepared. The time had come. The circumstances were right. So Jesus came. All right, I hope that wasn't too boring. That's a lot of information. There'll be a test at the end of the semester, just so you know. Uh, let me end with three quick observations to wrap up. One, God is not absent, not ever. We may not see him. We may not know his dealings, but he is always advancing his cause. You know, the intertestamental period has been called 400 years of silence, and yet it's obvious how much God was doing to arrange and coordinate the circumstances to serve his greater design. I was talking with a friend this week who told me about a time when he and his wife were visiting a counselor to talk about their children. At the time, both of their children were college age and they were deeply concerned about them. And they were complaining to the counselor about what God was doing or wasn't doing in their children's lives. And at one point, the counselor said, so you're telling me that because you can't see what God is doing, that must mean he's not doing anything. And of course, my friend realized how ridiculous it sounded when put like that. God is not absent, not ever. Second observation. We are involved in a much larger story than we realize. I mean, history is really his story. And we often spend far too much of our, our time with our heads down, moving from one to-do list to the next. We are involved in a very large story and we are wise to keep that perspective. And the third and final observation, God is always doing more than we know. Now this is really just an amplification of the first two points, I know, but it's worth teasing out. I mean, in the intertestamental period, God was moving kingdoms and continents to set the stage for what he wanted to show the world. He's always preparing and arranging and ultimately revealing and offering more than we could ever expect. And that's the theme for our Advent series, more than we expected. That's what Jesus is. That's what God is offering. That's the story we need to hear. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that uh, you are moving, active in our lives right now, even in those times when we don't sense it, we, we are in a cloud. We know that you're moving. Uh, God, you have moved throughout history in great ways and small, and we get to be a part of that. And um, we're reminded, right now we're reminded. And right now we want to focus on you and your movement and we really want to think about jesus and lord wow all that you did to prepare for his coming really prepare for us to to be shown more than we could have ever expected we hear that and we receive that tonight 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.